Lord, thank you that as we read these words, we see you're a God who communicates, who speaks, who has a word. And we pray as we look at these verses together, we pray that you might speak to us. Would you nourish us for the week ahead? Would you equip us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you change us? By your spirit, might you transform us more into the likeness of your son whom we read about. In his name we pray. Amen. Just imagine, please, imagine you've, um, you've got a good friend and you have been, um, over a number of years, maybe even decades, witnessing to that friend. You've been praying for them, you've been chatting to them about Jesus, you've, you've sought to take opportunities when their little doors have kind of opened, you've sought to kind of take them sensitively and kindly, and you've sought to answer their, their questions and their objections, falteringly perhaps, but you have. You've invested time and energy in them, you've loved them through good times and bad, indeed you've mourned with them and you've rejoiced with them, you've... You've generally sought to show them Christ and to speak of Christ. Everyday, normal, daily, slow witnessing. The kind of stuff that I guess most of us will be involved in. And now it's come to a crunch point. Because now they seem to get it all. They, they believe the facts. They can see who Jesus is. That They're convinced. They see even why they need him. But, but there's still a reluctance to commit. Because they say to you, well, what, what difference will he really make to me? Does, does he know about my future? Does he know about that broken friendship that keeps me awake at night? Does he know about the hassles that I'm going through at work? The boss that bullies me, the deadline on Tuesday, the presentation next month that I'm dreading? What does he know about my illness, about the anxious appointments at the hospital, and the pain, my weakness? What does he know about false starts and frustrations in life? What does he know about the uncertainty? Or the fact that secretly I dread Christmas because it will mean my family will get together and they'll always end up be bickering and fighting. And, and seriously, you're telling me to trust this Jesus from Nazareth, who died on a cross and who seemed to rise again, and you're telling me to give my life to him? Really? To put my life into his hands? But what does he know about me? What does he know about my life? What does he know about the things that I struggle with? Can I trust him? What do you say? Why should they trust Jesus? Why should they give their all to him? Maybe, maybe that's even our question this morning. And you see, what we'll see in John chapter 1, this, this passage we'll be in for the next month or so, the Apostle John, an eyewitness of Jesus, wants us to join the dots to see this Jesus is, to see who he is, to see that he's trustworthy, but also and especially why we must listen to what he says. And he'll want us to join the dots from eternity past, as far back as you can imagine, and then from there forward to a man walking around on the earth, talking and teaching and turning lives upside down, at weddings, barbecues on beaches. And he wants us to see that we can trust him. He wants us to see that he is good. He wants us to see that this 
is a voice we can listen to. And of course, John 1 in front of you, these claims would sound frankly outrageous to first century Jewish ears. We just cannot let ourselves think that they were just a bit simple and naive and gullible and believe this sort of stuff then. That's, it's called chronological snobbery. It doesn't wash. Just imagine you were a first century Jewish kid and you heard these verses read to you. You'd be nodding, verse 1. Yeah, of course, that's right. At the start of it all, God's word was with him. That's how he makes things. That's how he speaks to people. That's how he makes himself known. Fine. And so we're we're nodding along as it's being read to us, or at least some of it, because it begins to sound a bit funny, and a few doubts begin to creep in. It sounds in verse 2, this word, this way that God speaks and makes and relates, it sounds like like a person. He was with God in the beginning. He? And we begin to read ahead, heart starting to pump a bit. Scanning further down, verse 6 to 8, we think John, uh, better not be John the Baptist, that weird guy in the papers with the camel coat and the locust snacks in the desert. I hope he's not going on about him. And Wasn't he mixed up with that Jesus bloke? And then your eyes scan down a bit further and further and further until verse 17, and you finally get there. His name, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. And our hearts drop. We we can't believe it. He is talking about Jesus. According to this eyewitness, according to John, Jesus Christ is the word. And we're scratching our heads. And this might sound outlandish in our ears, to our context, but even more so back then when in a monotheistic Jewish culture. We're going to dig into the verses, just these first four verses really actually. And we're, and we're going to see five things about the word, five things about Jesus to be chewing over this week. John seeks to stretch and to push and to expand our understanding of who he is. Firstly, Jesus was there at the beginning. In the beginning was the words. And his opening gambit as Johnny started the service is an echo of the beginning of Genesis from the very start of the Bible. And yet we expect him to say, in the beginning, God, but he doesn't say that. He says, in the beginning was the word. And so John is saying, before, before you, before me, before New Testament times, before the exile, before the division of the kingdom, before Solomon, David, Joshua, before Moses, before Abraham, before Noah, before Cain and Abel, before Eve, before Adam, before the world, before the universe, before everything, in the beginning was the word. Jesus was there. Christmas didn't start 2,000 years ago. Christmas started in eternity past, in one sense. The word that God used to create and to make and to form and to fill, this word has a name. He has a face. It's a fascinating introduction to the gospel. John, I take it, is skillfully talking to all kinds of people at the same time. All kinds of expectations and framework come as you read this text. And yet he is, 
he is communicating in a way that different people will grasp and answer their questions. So to the Jews who had picked up this book about Jesus, he is speaking their language, speaking in a way they can comprehend and yet subversively twisting it, turning their ideas upside down. Not in the beginning God, but in the beginning was the word. But it wasn't just Jews who would pick up John's gospel at that point, or even now. There'd be Gentiles too, Greek Stoic thinkers. And John amazingly is speaking to them as well. And if it existed, the Greek Stoic um, philosophy for dummies book will in simple terms have read something like at the heart of the universe is an idea the world as we look at it is not muddled it's not chaotic there is an order to it as we look around and so the Greeks said this lack of chaos was because of the logos an impersonal principle or concept of order reason at the heart of the world shaping everything Actually, on the way past, that's not an outdated idea at all. Actually, it's very common in particular circles. Interestingly, particularly, it seems, amongst scientists. Listen to this guy. Um, he's a, a professor of natural philosophy based in Australia. Um, it's a, quite a long quote, um, and it's quite small. So if you scrunch your eyes up, and I will read it to you, um, see if you see what he's getting at. He says, The difficulty for a scientist who is an out-and-out atheist is that the essence of the scientific method is to seek reasons for why things are as they are in the world. Science asserts that the world is not arbitrary or absurd. Scientists expect the world to be thoroughly logical and rational at every step. But when you go down to the fundamental laws and ask why those laws, where did they come from, the standard atheistic response is to suddenly do a backflip and say, oh, well, the, the laws exist reasonlessly. There's no reason for why they are as they are, or indeed why they exist at all. The physical universe is ultimately arbitrary and absurd. But he continues, I don't believe the universe is arbitrary and absurd. I think there has something like meaning or purpose underpinning it. You see, at the heart of the universe, he says there is meaning and purpose. There is order. There is not chaos. This guy is essentially with the Greeks and the Stoics. And John is speaking to them both. To the Jews, he says, this word, God's voice, it has a name. And to the Greeks, this logos at the heart of the universe, he is not impersonal. He has a face. He is, he is Jesus. He took on flesh. The story of Christmas doesn't begin with a mucky manger. It starts at the beginning with the word. Jesus was there at the beginning. Secondly, Jesus was with God. And the with God, you see it there, they're more than just he was present there. They're more than simply he existed there. But they seem to imply relationship. Bible scholars point out that this, this phrasing, this collection of words, is used in a number of places through the gospel. So, for example, um, you can scribble it down if you like, Mark 14, verse 49, every day I was with you, or Mark 6, verse 3, and aren't his sisters here with us? He's hinting at community. So at the beginning, God, we might say God the Father, was in relationship with the Word, we might say God the Son. Jesus was with 
God. Now, many have noted that in the Old Testament, and, and in Proverbs in particular, there are interesting parallels going on to these verses. Proverbs 8 is the section in particular they're thinking of. There, the writer imagines wisdom personified in some sense. And in some ways, that chapter stretches us towards the idea of God not being alone as he creates. Let me just read some verses for you from about verse 27 of Proverbs 8. I, wisdom personified, wisdom was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. But then get this. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Did you see, describing God's creative work as if it were carried out and fulfilled through wisdom, his creative agent. And we think, in Proverbs 8, what sort of person was within a loving relationship with God from the very beginning, creating with God from the very beginning, Filled with delight day after day, rejoicing in his presence, delighting in mankind. Who was there from the start? Surely they would almost have to be divine in some sense. And John says, yeah, you've got it. You've got it. Jesus is God. The sort of person who is in a loving relationship with God from the beginning is, in fact, the sort of person who is God. Jesus is God, third point. Not only was the word with God, the word was God. See that at the end of verse 1. But church history is littered with a steady stream of people who, who get this wrong, who want to twist and stretch that fact unhelpfully. They're happy to say he is a God at times, but not the God. Think Dan Brown, his um, Da Vinci Code. Um, if you haven't read the Da Vinci Code, if you go and find um, charity shops, they are all over the shelves. Um, Basically, Dan Brown's story goes, AD 325, Church Council of Nicaea, they decided and voted on the fact that Jesus was in fact God, they say. And so from there, he kind of springs his story, which is a page turner, certainly is. Um, now, to be fair, the Council of Nicaea did clarify in one sense, because, but only because there were dangerous heretics who were twisting and challenging the truth that had been believed for the previous centuries. And so from heretics like Arius in the 4th century that they met over at Nicaea to, to Jehovah's Witnesses today, there are those who have got these verses or these ideas muddled up. Actually, it's really contemporary and it's really bad news. Um, there was a big survey in America a couple of months ago amongst people who would describe themselves as evangelicals, and we know that doesn't necessarily define their theology. That may be more of a cultural term. But as self-described evangelicals, 78% said that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. I'll say that again. 
78%, that's four out of five, pretty much, said that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Which is wrong. He was with God in the beginning. He is eternal. The phrase that you want to cling on to, or the phrase that you want to um, grasp to help you understand this, and from church history, again, around about the 4th century, was that there was never a time when the Son was not. He has always been the Son. There was never a time when the Son was not. We can chat over coffee about how you um, get there. Milk and one sugar. And sometimes that muddle and that misunderstanding is from not being taught well. And we recognize the Trinity has a level of mystery to it, a level of paradox. It is complex. But sometimes, as with the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's because of a deliberate decision that comes from the formal teaching of their church. And largely, or often, it comes down to 1 verse 1. So we're going to pause into a brief lay-by, and I'm going to lose some of you. And I apologize for that. But try and stick with me. Um, 1 verse 1, where does it come from? Where does this muddle come from? At a stretch, it can be translated, the word was a God. Okay? And so what do you say when you're walking past the Jehovah's Witnesses in town? They're at Carfax, they're on um, Magdalen Bridge, they're by Towley, uh, Cowley Tesco, um, they're all over Oxford at the moment, and you're feeling brave and you want to engage them, or they come and engage you, what do you say? Well, they knock on your door. And you want to talk to them. You want to witness to them. Um, four brief things that might help us from 1 verse 1 as to how we can encourage Jehovah's Witnesses and others with a correct understanding of what this means. It is not the word was a God, but he was God. Firstly, context. Read the rest of John's Gospel. Read of Jesus telling people in John 5 that he has been given life to give life and to judge. Those are divine attributes. Or think of the I am statements through John's gospel. Or think of him not rebuking Thomas. Remember Thomas at the end, chapter 20? My Lord and my God. And everyone was a bit awkward because Thomas had just blasphemed. No, no, Jesus accepts his worship as he says, my Lord and my God, because he is God. So think of the context in John's gospel. Jesus is divine. He is God. John clarifies elsewhere what he says here. Um, second thing to say is that there's a word choice going on as well. If, if John meant that Jesus was divine, a God but not the God, there was another word he could have used, a perfectly good Greek word available. But he didn't use that word. The word he uses means big G God. Thirdly, and this is slightly complex, um, and you can go and chat to Dave afterwards about this, there, there's a rules of Greek grammar thing going on. It's a slightly complicated one, but when you've got two nouns put together in Greek, the grammar doesn't demand a definite article, a the, for both nouns. It doesn't need to say the word was the God in Greek. That's not how it works. They don't do that. And fourthly, I take it he's done it like this for a reason. His point was to show us that Jesus is God, but also to distinguish him from God the Father. He's, 
He's divine and he's diverse in one sense. He is big G God, but also he is with God. He is separate from him. And this way of writing it by John gives us a glimpse of God's Trinitarian nature that he'll pick up and develop for us later on. Which means, back onto the road from the lay-by, it means that John is on the front foot from the beginning as he starts off this account of Jesus' life. And where Dan Brown and others like their sound bites and say that Jesus is never painted as God in the Bible, that's something we've invented 300 years later on, verses like this mean you struggle with that idea. You have to struggle with it. You can't take those claims seriously. Because John wants us to see he is big G God. We're told his identity. From the beginning, he tells us who he is. He is God, but more than that as well, he made everything, fourthly. You see, when you reach Genesis 1 and 2, God's word is so powerful and so good, it does exactly what he wants it to do. And God said, let X happen, and it happened. And God said, let Y happen, and it was so, and it was good. This, this powerful word, though, is, is not impersonal. This word has a name. So what is it for you that takes your breath away? Maybe this time of year, you're up on Shotover, and you see the rich colours of autumn. You see the tapestry of browns and oranges and yellows and reds and even pinks at times the astounding sunset on a clear summer's day the, the panoramic view from the top of the mountain you just gasp the crisp winter's day warm breath from our mouths tramping over snow-colored fields covered fields J jesus made them he made them. There's nothing that has been made that wasn't made by Jesus. And as Christians, we may differ on Genesis 1, on the how God made the world question. The dynamics of Genesis 1, is it a literal six days or not? Is it a literal 24 hours per day or not? And yet we can't differ on the fact that he made it all through Jesus, through his word. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And that's got implications for us in how we view the world as believers. Christians can get this wrong. Somewhere along the way, we have, we have been given the reputation of being anti-stuff. Christians don't like stuff very much, the story goes. You know, we're pro-spiritual, we like holy stuff, but we're kind of anti-physical. So we're anti-food, we're anti-fun, we're anti-sex, we're anti-music, we're anti-dancing, and especially we are anti-those things on a Sunday, the story goes. But, but Jesus made them. That they're not here by accident. They're not the product of evolution, evolutionary fluke in a hopeless, meaningless universe. As we rocket through the galaxy on a spinning boulder with just the right fine-tuning to support life. No, without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
Of course, there's a right context to enjoy those things. But that's only because he made everything and so he knows where we can enjoy them the best and not be hurt by them. But we can't be anti-stuff because he made stuff. And yet maybe we're thinking, well, what about pain? And what about cancer? What about floods and famine? What about death? What about some of the thorns that the children were thinking through and we were thinking through last week, the reality of living in this messy world, hurting world? Did Jesus make them? How do those things fit into these verses? Of course, the Bible doesn't end with Genesis chapter 1. Two chapters later, you see Adam and Eve shaking their little fists at God, wanting to live without him, to go their own way. And so the world in which we live is is out of kilter and under judgment and chaotic. It's not as it was meant to be. We see the fruit of that all the time because without God, if I want to be in charge and if you want to be in charge and we come together, it's messy. When we meet, it's war. Wars of words and wills in the playground, to the office, to the dining table. Wars between countries. The world that he created good has turned dark. And this is why, as Jesus comes into the world, he comes as light into darkness. You see, we may have walked out on God, but he has not walked out on us. And so finally, Jesus brings light to the world. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Do you see, as God, he has life in himself. He is the source of life. He he has life to make and to create and to give life. Jesus hasn't just come to tell us what we need to do. He's come to restore us. He's come to give us life again. Life in knowing the God who made us. Enjoying him. And this life, says John, is light Now maybe it's the light of revelation, that is God speaking to us, God telling us what we need to be rescued, what we need to do to be in relationship with him. Maybe that life was why it's the light of all mankind. Maybe it's the the light of goodness and righteousness though. Maybe there's an ethical dimension to it. Whichever it is, as we've already sung this morning, he is the light of the world. He comes down into darkness. And you know how you get rid of darkness? Imagine you've got a room full of dark. What what do you do about that darkness? How do you get rid of it? Do you you get the vacuum cleaner and suck up all the darkness? Do do, do you put it in buckets and throw it down the drain? Of course not. You, You turn on the lights. Jesus, the light, comes into the world. Which does make Christmas profoundly relevant. Do be praying and considering 
who we can invite to events that we're putting on. As you chat to friends and to colleagues and to family, to invite them along because they need to hear this. They will know that the world is dark. They will know of the reality of darkness in their lives, in their hearts. They need to hear of the light of the world. And so Jesus comes to bring light into a dark world. Just a couple of thoughts as we finish. Some people will find this offensive, firstly. I was reading an account um, of a friend recently who has the challenge and the privilege of publicly debating um, folk from the Islamic faith. And many of the things that they find offensive about the Christian faith, the incarnation and particularly the cross, those things make them angry. The fact that God condescends himself, lowers himself, takes on a body. One person said, if you want to um, persuade a Muslim, you need to have a different kind of messiah. And yet, what they gasp at and get angry about and sneer at, we, we treasure. Yes, it's a mystery. Yes, there's a paradox. Yes, it's extraordinary. But as God takes on flesh in Jesus, as he lives and he dies and is raised again, as he reconciles the people to himself, that is the most beautiful news in a dark world. Some will find that offensive. And that's okay, to an extent. For us, it is beautiful news. Second thought is, what do we say to that friend at the beginning? The friend who says, can I trust Jesus? Or what do we say to ourselves when we think stuff like that? I hear what you're saying, I can see why he's such good news, but really I am tempted to just crash on my own way, thank you. It would be much, much easier for me to go with my plan of action. Much more straightforward rather than God's ways of doing things. What do we say? Well, sometimes it's hard, but sometimes in life we need to trust people for who they are. We need to trust people because of their identity and what they know. So imagine you're um, at the hospital, and you have an appointment, you're in the waiting room and you're called through, and you go into the room and this person is sat there and they look about 14. And you come in and say, I'm really sorry, I was looking for the doctor. And it turns out they are the doctor. And in fact, they are a very, very good doctor. In fact, they are the best in their field. They are just the voice you needed to listen to. Well, so we can listen to Jesus. We must listen to Jesus because of who he is. He's, he's not just like all the other religious teachers who have come to give us their take on things. This is what I think the world is about. This is my way of doing things. This is who I think God is. No, he, he comes to tell us reality. He comes from outside the system into the system as light in the darkness. And so as you face the plethora of frustrations and voices out there telling you what you ought to do, listen to Jesus. Listen to the word. 
If you want to go to the best person who tells you how to live in the darkness, then go to the one who made the world. Because he is light. And we can trust him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these verses are are TARDIS-like in looking simple or small, but there being so much in them. We pray that you might help us to grasp more of the truth and the reality of your Son. The truth and the reality of who you are as our Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we pray that we might be a people who, who trust you, who trust your son because of who he is. Lord, you know the reality of our darkness, what that means for us as individuals, what that means for us as a church. Might we know and might we trust your light, please. In his precious name we pray. Amen.